Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. In our last podcast, we began our update of Proposition 47. In this podcast, we finish off that update. When we began our update, the number of published decisions touching upon Prop 47 had already exceeded 70. Now, the number is well beyond 80. The Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide that accompanies this podcast is close to 230 pages, so we're not going to be able to cover every issue that's cropped up. Rather, we're going to focus on those cases addressing some of the more common and or unresolved issues in implementing Proposition 47. This podcast has been approved for 90 minutes of MCLE general credit. Returning to discuss those issues is Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Eunice Yang. Eunice had, until recently, been assigned to handle all the Proposition 47 hearings in this county. Eunice, thanks for joining me again to finish off our Prop 47 update. Glad to be back, Jeff. Eunice, the last time you appeared on the podcast, we spent a lot of time discussing cases dealing with questions surrounding Penal Code Section 459.5. That's a statute that was enacted by Proposition 47, and it created a new offense of shoplifting. It requires misdemeanor sentencing on certain types of what previously were commercial burglaries. The new offense is limited to circumstances where there is entry into a commercial establishment during regular business hours, and the defendant has the intent to commit larceny of property valued at $950 or less. One of the hot issues is whether entry with multiple intents, for example, entry with an intent to cash a forged check, which would encompass an intent to commit forgery as well as theft, must be charged as shoplifting. This is an issue not only going forward in deciding how we charge cases, but also in dealing with defendants who come in after conviction seeking reduction of their convictions to misdemeanors. And we talked about cases going both ways on the issue the last time. But I understand that there are a couple of new cases that have issued since we did our previous podcast. So there are two cases of note. One of the cases we discussed earlier suggested that if the entry was made with the intent to obtain property, but would also involve an intent to commit identity theft, it would have to be charged as shoplifting. However, in People versus Bias, the court held that a defendant convicted of second-degree burglary based on entering a bank and attempting to cash a falsified check for under $950 drawn on the account of a real company was not entitled to be resentenced pursuant to section 1170.18. The bias court reasoned that defendant did not enter with the intent to commit larceny, but with the intent to make unlawful use of personal identifying information of another person. The bias court even rejected defendant's argument that since identity theft was not charged and the only other offense he had been charged with was forgery, which is subject to reduction under Prop 47, the court could not find that he entered with the intent to commit identity theft. The other case, People v. Chen, was less controversial. In Chen, a defendant who entered a Department of Motor Vehicles building with the intent to commit the felony of perjury 
was convicted of entering the Department of Motor Vehicles, a commercial building, with the intent to commit larceny and any felony and perjury. The perjury charge was dismissed and defendant pled guilty to second degree burglary. Later, the defendant sought to have his conviction reduced to a misdemeanor under the theory that he would only have been guilty of shoplifting as defined in Penal Code Section 459.5. The appellate court rejected defendant's argument, finding that the larceny language in the complaint plainly was superfluous and that based on pleadings and record of conviction, the defendant was clearly convicted of felony second-degree burglary based on the entry into a building with the intent to commit the felony of perjury. The court held burglary based on entry to commit perjury was not within the scope of section 459.5. Okay, another new section enacted by Proposition 47 that we began discussing in our last session was Penal Code Section 490.2, which essentially states that if a crime is theft and the property taken is no greater than $950, the defendant can only be charged with a misdemeanor unless the defendant has a conviction for a crime designated as a disqualifying offense, sometimes known as a super strike, or has to register as a sex offender. But what crimes qualify as theft for purposes of section 490.2 has been the subject of some dispute. For example, Eunice, can we still charge a felony violation of vehicle code section 10851 where the vehicle is worth no more than $950 and or the defendant who has previously been convicted of that section based on taking or driving a car worth no more than $950, uh, is that person entitled to a reduction of his felony conviction to a misdemeanor? The issue of whether Prop 47 applies to a violation of Section 10851 is currently before the predictions on the outcome of uh, the page decision, Eunice? Well, I'm not a good prognosticator, Jeff, <laughs> but let me give our audience some of the arguments and counter-arguments. The arguments in favor of finding Section 10851 is outside the scope of Prop 490.2's definition of theft, at least when the theory of the prosecution is based solely on the defendant taking or driving the vehicle with the intent to merely temporarily deprive the victim of the property seem pretty compelling. After all, if the vehicle is driven or taken without the intent to permanently deprive, it does not fit any definition of theft. Although, in the recent case of People versus Solis, the Court of Appeal held as a matter of statutory interpretation that all convictions under Section 10851, including those committed with the intent to deprive the owner of permanent possession of the vehicle, are ineligible for reduction. What are some of the arguments the defense makes uh, to the contrary? Well, they fall back on the idea that Prop 47 should be broadly interpreted to give relief when the crime at issue is not serious or violent felony and point out that the same policy reasons motivating Prop 47's reduction in punishment for certain felony or wobbler offenses would also apply equally well to Vehicle Code Section 10851. Somewhat more persuasive is their argument that it makes no sense that a crime involving an intent to temporarily deprive someone of property worth less than $951 is not deemed petty theft, while a crime with a more culpable state of mind, let's say an intent to permanently deprive someone of property worth less than $951, is deemed a petty theft. 
A related argument is that equal protection principles require that a conviction for unlawfully taking a vehicle in violation of Vehicle Code Section 10851 be treated in the same manner as a conviction for a grand theft auto in violation of Penal Code Section 487D1, which is subject to Prop 47. But they also argue that even assuming not all violations of Section 10851 should be covered, at least those involving driving or taking with the intent to permanently deprive should be. Well, how should prosecutors respond to those defense arguments, at least until we hear from the California Supreme Court? There are plenty of arguments. One is that there is no reference to Vehicle Code Section 10851, or any Vehicle Code violation for that matter, in the list of crimes designated in the new Penal Code Section 1170.18 as being eligible for resentencing, and there was no amendment to the language of Section 10851 by Prop 47. Section 490.2 says it applies, notwithstanding Penal Code Section 487 or any other provision of law defining grand theft. But Vehicle Code Section 10851 has always been viewed as a distinct crime from Section 487 and has never been viewed as a defining grand theft. And application of some of the rules of statutory construction described in Solis and in the accompanying IPG memo also favor the interpretation that Section 490.2 does not apply to violations of Section 10851. All right, so what can we say in response to the defense argument that it doesn't make sense to allow someone who unlawfully takes or drives a vehicle valued under $950 and does so with a less culpable state of mind than the intent to permanently deprive uh, someone to be treated as a felon, but not someone who steals a vehicle in violation of Section 487D1, which is straight up auto theft. Well, the cynical response is that the drafters of Prop 47 were more concerned with passing the initiative than with being consistent. In including Vehicle Code Section 10851 in the list of crimes that can no longer be charged as a felony if the vehicle taken is worth less than $950 might tend to alienate voters. The non-cynical response is that there's nothing absurd or irrational about the legislative determination that theft of certain automobiles of very low value should be treated as petty theft, and thus potentially a misdemeanor while retaining the statutory option of punishing the unlawful taking or driving of an automobile regardless of intent to steal as a felony violation of Vehicle Code Section 10851. As pointed out in People v. Solis, Felony prosecutions under Section 10851 serve important public safety and deterrence functions that differ from those served by prosecutors for theft. So we're going to take a stop here and go back to, as pointed out, deterrence. Deterrence, yes, yeah, Prime yeah, Minister. Yeah. So where should I start from? So here? just pick it up from as pointed out in People versus Solis. Wrong, is that all right? As pointed out in People v. Solis, felony prosecutions under Section 10851 serve important public safety and deterrence functions that differ from those served by prosecutions for theft. The Vehicle Code is concerned with assuring public safety on California thoroughfares, whereas the Penal Code is concerned with wrongs of individual people. By punishing, taking, or driving a vehicle without the intent to deprive the owner of permanent title or possession, 
Section 10851 addresses dangers to the public. Such dangers are not encompassed by standard theft statute, which focus on particular victims, the owners of stolen personal property. All right, I guess that provides a rational basis for drawing that distinction, so an equal protection argument can be overcome. Yes, but that is not the only response to the equal protection argument. The California Supreme Court has held that neither the existence of two identical criminal statutes prescribing different levels of punishments nor the exercise of a prosecutor's discretion in charging under one statute and not the other violates the equal protection principles. Does this mean that if we have a defendant charged with a Section 10851, in the future we shouldn't bother proving up the value of the vehicle? No. Until the California Supreme Court rules on that issue, it indubitably makes sense to prove the value of a vehicle is over $950 if it can be done. All right. Eunice, if a defendant steals a firearm worth $950 or less in violation of Penal Code Section 487D2, is the person subject to felony punishment? In People v. Perkins, a case that issued a few months ago, the Court of Appeal indicated a defendant convicted of that offense would be entitled to resentencing on that conviction as a misdemeanor, provided that the value of the firearm did not exceed $950. Now, what about elder abuse involving theft, embezzlement, fraud, or identity theft? If the property is valued under $950, can we go forward on a violation of Penal Code Section 368D or E as a felony? Does Section 490.2 prevent felony punishment for a violation of, of 368D or E? Not according to the recent appellate court case of People v. Bush, which held violations of Section 368 are not subject to Section 490.2's requirement that thefts of under $950 be charged as misdemeanors. Why not? Well, among the reasons provided for rejecting defendant's argument, Prop 47 neither lists Section 368 as a crime eligible for resentencing nor amends Section 368 to change it from a wobbler to a misdemeanor. And even assuming Prop 47 encompasses statutes not amended or listed in Prop 47, it clearly was not intended to preclude felony punishment for elder abuse, which is treated as a more serious offense than mere theft. We know this because Prop 47 made changes to Penal Code Section 666, so that most violations of Section 484, 666 petty thefts with a prior must be prosecuted as misdemeanors. However, Proposition 47 added language to Section 666, allowing such defendants to continue to be prosecuted as felons, even if they have only one theft-related prior conviction if they have a prior conviction for elder abuse in violation of Section 368. Eunice, under Prop 47, if a defendant commits a forgery relating to a check, bond, bank bill, note, cashier's check, traveler's check, or money order, the defendant has to be punished as a misdemeanor if the value of the item does not exceed $950 unless the person has a super striker as a registrable sex offender. Is the value of the forged item for purposes of determining that $950 cutoff, calculated by the amount stated on the face of the document, the amount obtained by passing the forged document, or the intrinsic value of the document. 
Jeff, that was a question facing the court in People versus Franco, a case where the defendant argued that the value of the Ford check he possessed was under $950, even though it had a face value of $1,500 because it was illegally drawn and was not exchanged for the value. The defendant claimed that the check had no actual value other than its intrinsic value by virtue of the paper it was printed on. But the Franco court disagreed, noting that Section 473B does not specify how the value is calculated, but when viewed in the context of forgery, the word value must correspond to the stated value or face value of the check in order to avoid absurd consequences. Really, no forgery of these documents could ever be prosecuted as a felony unless the defendant actually obtained the property. Franco is still fairly new, so it might be taken up. Okay. So let's say a defendant tried to pass several forged documents. Can the amount of the documents be aggregated to get us over the $950 threshold and avoid the limitation imposed by Prop 47? Well, I don't have to speculate on this one, Jeff. In the now final appellate case of People v. Hoffman, the defendant was charged with, among other things, 18 counts of felony forgery for forging her parents' checks in violation of Penal Code Section 470D. All but seven of the felony forgery counts were dismissed as part of the plea, one count of grand theft of property of a value exceeding $950 for the aggregate forgery of her parents' checks was also dismissed. As part of the plea, the defendant executed a Harvey waiver, which allowed the court to consider the facts underlying the dismissed counts in determining sentence. After Prop 47 passed, the defendant petitioned for resentencing, but the trial court denied the request based on the fact that the total amount of checks exceeded $950, and that placed the defendant outside the spirit of law that was passed by voters. In the court of appeal, however, the defendant prevailed. The Hoffman Appellate Court said, Section 473B, which lays out the punishment for forgery, does not authorize the trial court to aggregate check values, and the value of the check in each instant was less than $950. Moreover, the appellate court held that the trial court could not refuse to reduce the defendant's sentence based on the court's notion of the statute's spirit. Even though the Harvey waiver allowed the trial court to rely on facts underlying the dismissed forgery and the grand theft counts. It likely would be a different story, though, if the defendant was convicted of passing bad checks in violation of Penal Code Section 476A. Why do you say that, Eunice? Because Subdivision B of 476, which was enacted as part of Prop 47's changes, states, if the total amount of all checks, drafts, or orders that the defendant is charged with and convicted of making, drawing or uttering does not exceed $950, it can only be punished as a misdemeanor unless the defendant is otherwise disqualified as a super striker or registered sex offender or has previously been convicted of three or more violations of section 470, 475, or 476, or this section, or of the crime of petty theft in a case in which the defendant's offense was violations also of section 470, 475 or 476. You know, before the passage of Prop 47, Penal Code Section 496 Subdivision A, which governs receipt of stolen property, permitted the district attorney or grand jury to specify that a violation of Section 496 was a misdemeanor 
if the value of the property was not over $950. Now, Prop 47 eliminated that provision and now requires the prosecution to charge a misdemeanor violation of Section 496, Subdivision A, when the value of the stolen property is $950 or less and the defendant has not been convicted of a registrable sex offense or a super strike. Penal Code Section 496D, now I'm, this is not 496 Subdivision D, it's just straight up 496D, is a similar offense that makes it unlawful, among other things, to receive a stolen motor vehicle. It's a wobbler offense. Is Section 496D affected by Proposition 47? There are actually four cases that have addressed Prop 47's application to violations of Penal Code Section 496D. All four concluded that the changes enacted to Penal Code Section 496 do not apply to Section 496D, regardless of whether the vehicle is worth less than $950. Why did they reach that conclusion? I mean, Section 496D, isn't it really just a variation on Section 496? It's a, it's a theft-related, non-violent, non-serious offense. And don't all the voters want these kinds of offenses to be treated as misdemeanors where the value of the property is less than $950? And by not doing so, don't we violate equal protection? Well, the appellate decisions rejected those arguments. Prop 47 makes no mention of 496D. There's nothing to interpret. Moreover, there's no violation of equal protection since there's nothing irrational about the legislative determination that receiving stolen property of very low value should, as a general matter, be punishable as a misdemeanor pursuant to Section 496 while retaining the statutory option of punishing the receipt of stolen motor vehicles, even one of very low value, as a felony violation of Section 496D. Unlike other forms of stolen property, stolen vehicles are often dismantled and sold for parts in chop shops, which can raise their worth above retail value, and owners of the vehicles typically depend on those vehicles for necessities, which is not so frequently the case with thefts of other forms of property. One of the cases, People v. Orozco, is no longer citable since rehearing was granted. And two of the other cases, People v. Peacock and People v. Garness, were taken up by the California Supreme Court. So all we're left with is one case holding 496D is outside the scope of Prop 47? That's right, People v. Nichols, for now anyway. All right, well, it seems like most courts, though not all, are reluctant in general to extend the reach of Prop 47 to crimes that are not specifically mentioned in the initiative. Now certainly, if the crime is mentioned in the initiative, the fact that the theory of liability for the crime was aiding and abetting or conspiracy won't make any difference. But let's say we charge a defendant with the substantive crime of conspiracy in violation of Penal Code Section 182. But the crime the defendant is charged with conspiracy to commit is one of the crimes mentioned in Prop 47. Will the punishment be limited to a misdemeanor if the target crime of the 182 violation is one that could be only treated as a misdemeanor under Prop 47? Well, I can give you a definitive answer to that one, Jeff. In People v. Segura from 2015, a case which the California Supreme Court denied review of, the defendant sought resentencing on a charge for conspiracy to commit petty theft in violation of Penal Code Section 182. The Court of Appeal upheld the trial court's rejection of defendant's request, 
finding that the crime of conspiracy was not one of the crimes specified in Section 1170.18, and thus, thus a court had no authority to reduce the felony conviction for conspiracy. Moreover, the appellate court found that it was not absurd to draw a distinction between the crime of petty theft and the crime of conspiracy, since crimes committed pursuant to conspiracy present a greater evil than crimes committed by an individual. The holding in Segura should apply equally when a defendant is charged with substantive offenses for conspiracy, regardless of whether the crime is petty theft or another crime made misdemeanor by Prop 47, like possession of methamphetamine. Also, the language in the opinion that makes it clear that Section 1170.18 only applies to crimes specifically designated should be useful when defendants seek to apply for Prop 47 to any crime not specifically designated in Section 1170.18. Yes, up to now we've been focusing more on the effects of Proposition 47 on cases uh, going forward after the passage of the initiative cases where there has not yet been a conviction for a crime that would be impacted by Prop 47. Let's shift our focus a little bit to discuss some of the issues that have arisen when it comes to the retroactive effects of Prop 47 on crimes for which the defendant has already been convicted. Prop 47 provided defendants a mechanism for obtaining resentencing on certain prior convictions, correct? Yes. Section 1170.18, enacted by Prop 47, allows defendants who have previously been convicted of one of the crimes that was reduced from a felony to misdemeanor by Prop 47 to petition for reduction or resentencing, or if they are not currently serving a sentence, to file an application for redesignation of their conviction from a felony to a misdemeanor. They are entitled to the reduction if they can show they would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under Prop 47 if the act had been in effect at the time of the offense. Does a defendant have to go by way of Section 1170.18, the procedure set up in that section, to obtain a reduction of a prior felony conviction to a misdemeanor? It doesn't just happen automatically? All the courts weighing in on that issue have held that in order to obtain the reduction, the defendants must utilize Section 1170.18. Right. Different story, though, if there's been no conviction, correct? Yes. People versus Shabazz, an appellate case from 2015, stated any defendant convicted after the effective date of Prop 47 of a crime formally prosecutable as a felony but only prosecutable as a misdemeanor absent disqualifying circumstances gets the benefit of Prop 47. In other words, if a defendant has a felony pending as a Prop 47 effective date and it involves a crime that has been reduced to a misdemeanor by way of Prop 47, the defendant can only be convicted of a misdemeanor. But it, when it comes to cases in which a defendant has already been convicted and sentenced, the reduction does not happen automatically. The cases have consistently held that the defendant must follow the procedures laid out in the statute. But didn't the California Supreme Court, in a case called Estrada, rule a long time ago that if you've got an amendatory statute lessening punishment and becomes effective prior to the date of the judgment uh, that the conviction becomes final, then it, and not the old statute in effect when the prohibited act was committed, applies. And cases are not yet final for purposes of the Estrada rule until the time in which a petition for cert in the United States Supreme Court is passed. So if a defendant has been sentenced 
but is still appealing his sentence, wouldn't he automatically get the benefit of the reduction in punishment even without filing a petition or application under Section 1170.18? Well, defendants have made this argument. So far, it has been rejected by the appellate decisions. The general reasoning behind these decisions is that Estrada exception does not apply when the legislator or the electorate has clearly indicated they did not intend to make the reduction of the crime apply retroactively, and that by including specific procedures for obtaining reduction of specified felony convictions, the voters clearly indicated they never intended that Prop 47 would automatically apply to allow a reduction of felony to a misdemeanor absent compliance with those specific procedures. Several of these decisions are on the books and review has been denied or no petition for review has been filed. However, the California Supreme Court has taken up for review the case of People v. De Hoyos and several other cases which will allow them to resolve the retroactivity issue in its various forms. Are defendants with juvenile adjudications for crimes covered by Prop 47 entitled to a resentencing under Section 1170.18? Because the actual language of the resentencing and the recall provisions is worded in terms of a defendant who is currently serving a sentence for a conviction of a felony, a minor currently serving a sentence following a juvenile adjudication for a crime that has been reduced to a misdemeanor under Prop 47 should not be technically eligible for resentencing pursuant to Section 1170.18. This is because pursuant to Welfare and Institutions Code Section 203, a juvenile adjudication is not a conviction. However, in Alejandro N. versus Superior Court of San Diego County, the court concluded that Section 1170.18 was intended to apply to juvenile offenders. The Alejandro N. Court concluded that it is clear from the plain language of Welfare and Institutions Code Section 602, the changes to the substantive offenses defined in the Penal Code apply to juvenile wardships. And because Section 1170.18 directly involves changes to these substantive offenses, it likewise applies to juvenile offenders. You know, so Penal Code Section 1170.18a, the resentencing provision of Prop 47, says a person currently serving a sentence for a conviction of a felony or felonies who would have been guilty of a misdemeanor had Prop 47 been in effect at the time of the offense can petition for a recall of sentence. I know if a person has been sentenced and is currently in jail or prison for one of the designated crimes, it can't reasonably be argued the defendant is not currently serving a sentence. And a couple of published cases have implicitly assumed that's correct. But what about persons on probation? Are they considered to be currently serving a sentence? Well, an argument can be made that a defendant who is on probation is not serving a sentence because when a defendant is placed on probation, imposition or execution of a sentence has been suspended. And where the sentence itself is suspended, the sentence has not been and may never be pronounced. Moreover, the phrase serving a sentence when used within the law generally refers to serving a term of confinement, and it is contrasted with the defendants being placed on probation. However, the two appellate courts to weigh in on this issue, People v. Davis and People v. Garcia, have found a person on probation is currently serving a sentence. After all, the term sentence can also be understood to refer more generally to criminal sanction, 
whether by probation, prison term, or otherwise. And this is likely the plain meaning of the term sentence. There is also some support in the analysis of the legislative analyst for treating probationers as serving a sentence. And there is nothing in either the ballot materials or the statutory language that appears to limit the phrase currently serving a sentence for a conviction to those serving a term of imprisonment. Finally, to interpret it otherwise would lead to absurd consequences since a defendant who is in custody serving a prison sentence could obtain the benefit of a reduction but not a defendant placed on probation, the more lenient disposition. Eunice, I, I know we've been generally sticking to issues that have been raised in the published cases, but let me make an exception for a couple of questions. Do you think that persons currently on mandatory supervision under Penal Code Section 1170H will also be held to be serving a sentence for purposes of determining whether or not they can obtain resentencing? If even persons on probations are considered to be serving a sentence, and there is even less reason to find persons on probation are serving the sentence than to find persons on mandatory supervision are, it is highly likely that persons on mandatory supervision will be deemed to be serving a sentence for the purpose of Prop 47 resentencing as well. All right, what about defendants on parole or PRCS? There are arguments going both ways on whether someone on parole is serving a sentence. In a case from 2015 called People v. Armageddon, the appellate court concluded the word sentence as used in subdivisions A and F includes a prison term and corresponding period of parole. And in People v. Morales and People v. Pinon, the courts of appeal held that a defendant who was released on PRCS at the time he petitioned to have a sentence recalled was serving a sentence for purposes of Prop 47. However, Armageddon, Pinon, and Morales were all subsequently taken up by the California Supreme Court. One way or the other, though, a defendant on parole or PRCS is going to be entitled to a reduction in their sentence, either by way of petition or by way of application, if the court rules that they are not serving a sentence. You know, Section 1170.18 requires the defendant to file a petition to obtain relief. Does that petition have to be a written petition? No. Two cases, People v. Amaya and People v. Franco, have held that the petition does not have to be a written petition. Have any cases stated what has to be included in that petition? Yes. In the case of People v. Perkins from 2016, the court stated in a successful petition the offender must set out a case for eligibility, stating and in some cases showing that the offense of conviction has been reclassified as a misdemeanor where the offense of conviction is a theft crime reclassified based on the value of stolen property, showing the value of property did not exceed $950. The defendant must attach information or evidence necessary to enable the court to determine eligibility. However, in the case People v. Amaya from 2015, the appellate court held an oral motion made when defendant admitted a probation revocation was sufficient where the defendant on probation for six counts of commercial burglary had simply stated he wanted to reduce this to be a misdemeanor. Hmm. Where does the petition have to be filed? Section 1170.18a says the petition should be filed before the trial court that entered the judgment of conviction in his or her case. Thus, in the case of People v. Marks, the court held a defendant who has filed a petition for resentencing 
in a court where the defendant suffered a recent conviction may not ask that same court to reduce the priors used to enhance that conviction if the priors used to enhance that recent conviction arose from another jurisdiction. Can a petition be denied without even holding a hearing? In People v. Perkins, the court held that Section 1170.18 does not expressly require the trial court to hold a hearing before considering the eligibility criteria, nor is there a reference to the taking of evidence or other proceeding that would compel involvement by the parties. The Perkins court read the statute to fairly imply that in the normal case, the superior court will rule on the basis of the petition and any supporting documentation. For example, resentencing may be denied based solely on the fact of a prior conviction of a designated superstrike or any offense requiring registration as a sex offender under Section 290C. Similarly, the petition may be summarily denied without a hearing if the offender is seeking resentencing for a crime that has not been reclassified as a misdemeanor. In other cases, the Superior Court may be able to determine whether a petitioner is eligible for resentencing simply by consulting the record of conviction or evidence submitted by the parties. More recently, the court in the case People v. Federalizo acknowledged that the initial eligibility decision typically can be made without a hearing because eligibility is often obvious on indisputable written record. Okay, well, who has the burden of proof in obtaining relief? Although the statute is silent as to who has the burden of proof, courts have uniformly held the defendant requesting resentencing under Prop 47 has the burden of establishing his or her eligibility for such resentencing. That is, the petitioner is currently serving a felony sentence for a crime that would have been a misdemeanor had Prop 47 been in effect at the time the crime was committed, and to show the value of property taken did not exceed $950 if the crime at issue is a theft offense under sections designated under Prop 47. So what's the level of the burden of proof? Is it preponderance of the evidence? So only one case has identified the level of the burden of proof that must be met in establishing initial eligibility. In People v. Bush from 2016, the court stated that trial court must determine if the petitioner is eligible for resentencing under Section 1170.18 based on a preponderance of the evidence. However, in support of this conclusion, the Bush court cited People v. Osuna, a case involving a Prop 36 three strikes resentencing hearing that held the prosecution must prove the existence of a disqualifying factor by preponderance of evidence. In any event, in coming to its conclusion, Osuna relied on Evidence Code Section 115, which establishes the default burden of proof on the moving party when no burden is actually stated in the statute. Independent of Osuna, Section 115 provides support for the Bush Court's conclusion. Well, 115 does state the default burden of proof is preponderance of the evidence, but how does this burden actually play out in practice? Well, let me give you some examples of what is not enough as illustrated by some recent cases. 
In People v. Perkins from 2016, the court held a defendant did not provide sufficient information where the defendant filed a form stating he was convicted for receipt of stolen property and that the value of the property did not exceed $950, but provided no information whatsoever on the nature and the value of the stolen property. Also, in People v. Chereau from 2015, the court held that the defendant failed to meet his burden where the defendant had been convicted of five different burglaries and he sought resentencing on all five counts without a separate discussion on the counts, no reference to the facts or evidence and no argument. The Chereau court held that a proper petition would certainly contain at least the petitioner's testimony and about the nature of the items taken. In People v. Ortiz from 2016, the court held the defendant did not meet the burden of showing the vehicle taken was under $950, where the record simply showed the victims bought the vehicle for $1,000 and that they sold it for $300 after recovering it. But the victims claimed the vehicle was damaged while in the defendant's position, possession, and the record did not show how long ago the victims bought the car or how far they drove it before it was stolen. Ortiz has been taken up for review by the California Supreme Court, however. In contrast to those cases, in People v. Bush from 2016, the court held that a defendant met his initial burden of showing eligibility for reduction of his felony convictions for receiving stolen property, where the record, though sparse because the trial court lost defendant's petition, were each based on single stolen identification card. And in such cases, generally the monetary loss to the victim is difficult to quantify as exceeding $950. Eunice, what type of documentation or evidence may be considered either in the court's initial review of the petition or at the resentencing hearing itself? Well, it's not entirely clear. Most cases to consider the issue have concluded at a minimum the record of conviction may be considered in deciding whether a defendant has met his initial burden of showing he is eligible for reduction. But whether the resentencing court may go beyond the record of conviction is a matter of dispute. The record of conviction, of course, means what a court can consider in proving a prior. In People v. Perkins, an appellate case from 2016, the court indicated that the resentencing court should be able to not only consider the record of conviction, but evidence submitted by the parties, at least where the matter of eligibility concerns facts that were not actually adjudicated at the petitioner's original conviction, such as the value of property taken, where previously the value of property taken was irrelevant to whether the the crime was a misdemeanor or a felony. You know, courts interpreting Proposition 47 often look to cases interpreting Proposition 36, the three strikes resentencing initiative. In a case called People v. Bradford, the court held that evidence submitted at a resentencing hearing under the Three Strikes Reform Act must be from the record of conviction. Did the Perkins court attempt to distinguish the holding in Bradford? Yes, they did. The Perkins court drew a distinction between resentencing hearings under Prop 47 and resentencing hearings under Prop 36 on this point, noting that eligibility for resentencing under Prop 36 turns on the nature of the petitioner's convictions, whether an offender is serving a sentence on a conviction for a non-serious 
nonviolent offenses, and whether he or she has prior disqualifying convictions for certain other defined offenses. Whereas under Prop 47, eligibility turns on the simple factual question of the value of the stolen property. The Perkins Court stated, in most such cases, the value of the property was not important at the time of conviction, so the record may not contain sufficient evidence to determine its value. For that reason, and because the petitioner bears the burden on that issue, the court held the Bradford Court's reasons for limiting evidence to the record of conviction were not applicable in Prop 47 cases. However, the Perkins Court cautioned that its statement in this regard does not mean there will be a mini trial on the value of stolen property in every case, only that offenders may submit extra record evidence probative of the value when they file their petitions for resentencing. And in People v. Chereau from 2015, the court also suggested a defendant's petition could be supplemented by a declaration or testimony from the defendant about the nature of items taken. On the other hand, in People v. Triplett from 2016, the court held that in adjudicating eligibility for resentencing, the trial court must determine the facts needed to adjudicate eligibility based on the evidence obtained solely from the record of conviction. The rationale the triplet court gave for adopting this principle in the context of Prop 47 was the same it gave for adopting it on the context of Prop 36. Had the drafters of Prop 36 intended the trial court to consider newly offered evidence at the eligibility stage, they would have included express language of the type they did to describe the nature of the court's later discretionary sentencing determination. Further, consideration that is limited to the record of conviction promotes the efficient administration of justice while preventing relitigation of the circumstances of a crime committed years ago, which could potentially implicate other cons constitutional concerns. That being said, the triplet court went on to state that in determining eligibility for sentence modification under the act, a trial court is not limited to the record of conviction, but may also consider any factual stipulations or clear agreements by the parties that, added, that add to but do not contradict the record of conviction. The agreement must be clear though. In triplet, there was a factual representation by the people accepted by the defendant that indicated the amount at issue in one conviction was less than $950 but there was no agreement solicited or offered as to the amount at issue as to the other conviction. Although defendant's counsel did later state that all three of the acts are under $950 and the prosecutor did not dispute that statement, the triplet court held an uncontested comment is not the same as a clear agreement and declined to expand the facts outside the record that a court may consider in this context to include mere representations to which no protest was lodged. Okay, quite a mouthful, yes. <laughs> Does it make a difference at all if the original plea involved a waiver of the right not to have counts that were dismissed considered? Yes, 
In People v. Hoffman from 2015, the court stated that where the original plea involved a Harvey waiver, the trial court would be allowed to rely on facts underlying the dismissed counts to make whatever sentencing determinations were authorized under Section 1170.18. So let's say uh, there are certain facts uh, about, for example, the value of the property, and those facts are disputed. Should an evidentiary hearing occur? Well, a court has authority to consider additional evidence or hold a hearing. In Perkins, a case we've mentioned several times now, the court stated that where the evidence or information provided in the initial petition was sufficient to create a dispute, it would be appropriate for the superior court to allow parties to address the disputed issue at a later qualification hearing. Now, if you're having these hearings, or even in preparing the petition for resentencing, is a defendant entitled to the assistance of counsel? Although public defenders routinely assist and participate in hearings on recall and resentencing petitions filed pursuant to Section 1170.18, it's an open discussion whether a defendant is entitled to such assistance. And People v. Perkins stated that it did not agree every offender is entitled to assistance of counsel in preparing a petition for resentencing, but took no position on whether the superior court must appoint counsel to represent a petitioner at an eligibility hearing. However, the appellate court in People v. Roos from 2016 did take a position on that question, stating that when a defendant currently serving a felony sentence presents a petition pursuant to Section 1170.18 Subdivision A and is found eligible for resentencing, that defendant is entitled to assistance of counsel at resentencing, where there's going to be a resentencing that might restructure the sentence on all counts, but not if all that's going to happen is a single felony conviction is going to be reduced to a misdemeanor. The Roos Court concluded that where a restructured sentence is going to be imposed, then resentencing is a critical stage of the proceeding and the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to counsel kicks in. Moreover, the Roos Court held that a defendant's waiver of his right to be present at the hearing did not constitute a waiver of a separate right to counsel. Did the Roos Court opine on the right to assistance in filing a petition or when the defendant is no longer serving a sentence and is simply seeking a reduction from a felony to a misdemeanor uh, by way of application? The Roos Court limited its holding and did not opine on whether the right to counsel attaches at an earlier stage of the petition, including the eligibility phase, or whether the right to counsel attaches for an individual who has completed his or her felony sentence and files a petition for reclassification under subdivision F of section 1170.18. Let's say a defendant doesn't want counsel, but wants to represent himself at a resentencing hearing. We know that there's some version of a right to counsel. Is there also a version of a right to self-representation? In People versus Fataliza, the court indicated the defendant has such a right. However, it stated that if a trial court does appoint counsel to represent a defendant, it is not required to determine directly from the defendant whether he or she has consented to legal representation. Is a defendant entitled to be present at the evidentiary hearing? And if, if so, can the defendant waive his or her presence? In the appellate court case of People v. Fetalizo, the court held that where a trial court is conducting an unopposed eligibility review in open court only as a prelude to resentencing and no facts are in dispute, 
the defendant is not entitled to be present at the hearing. On the other hand, a defendant may not be resentenced on the now misdemeanor offense without a valid waiver of his presence. Eunice, when the court is deciding whether a defendant is serving a sentence for a felony, who would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under Prop 47 had it been in effect at the time of the offense, does the court consider whether other charges were dismissed or reduced at the time of the plea? In People v. Gonzalez, the people contended that eligibility for relief under Section 1170.18a necessarily requires the court to consider the underlying facts of a defendant's offenses, such as whether there were other crimes charged that might not have been dismissed or reduced if the only conviction resulting from the plea would be a misdemeanor, and not simply the statute of conviction to determine whether a petitioner would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under the act that had been added in this section. However, the Gonzalez court disagreed. It held the statutory language of Prop 47 is entirely focused on resentencing offenders, offenders for existing but reclassified convictions. It says nothing at all about reopening dismissed felony charges or requiring a petitioner to prove he or she would have been avoided conviction of such charges to qualify for resentencing. Accordingly, it held that a defendant in the case before it was entitled to resentencing because she would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under her actual conviction for grand theft from a person and it is irrelevant whether under the totality of the facts underlying her offense, she would have avoided a guilty verdict for the original robbery and burglary charges. And in People v. Triplett from 2016, the court also rejected the prosecution's argument that a defendant convicted of a Prop 47 eligible offense by way of a plea bargain must show that he would have secured the same plea bargain had Prop 47 been in effect at the time of his plea. The prosecution claimed the defendant, who had eight prior prison terms and who had been facing two counts of second-degree burglary, two counts of passing a fictitious check, and two counts of forgery all with an on-bail enhancement, would not have been allowed to plead to only two misdemeanor counts of Penal Code Section 459.5, which is all the defendant would end up being convicted of after resentencing. However, the triplet court rejected this argument, noting that Prop 47 does not speak to whether defendant would not have been convicted of a misdemeanor, but whether he would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under the Act. Okay, so let's say we get to the point of an evidentiary hearing and the defendant shows he meets all the eligibility criteria. The defendant can still be denied resentencing if it's shown that he poses an unreasonable risk of danger to public safety. Has there been any decisions flushing out what this means? Well, not many, Jeff. Subdivision C of section 1170.18 states, it means the defendant poses an unreasonable risk that the petitioner would commit a new violent felony that is a super strike. In People v. Hoffman from 2015, the appellate court quoted from the Voter Information Guide, rebuttal to argument against Prop 47. That's at page 39. Prop 47 prevents judges from blocking the early release of prisoners except in very rare cases. For example, even if the judge finds that the inmate poses a risk of committing a crime like kidnapping, robbery, assault, spousal abuse, torture of small animals, carjacking, or felonies committed on behalf of a criminal street gang, 
Prop 47 requires their release. Applying that standard, the Hoffman court held that a defendant convicted of numerous counts of forgery, but who had no prior criminal history, would not pose an unreasonable risk of danger to public safety within the meaning of Section 1170.18, because the defendant was not likely to commit a super strike offense. Is a defendant entitled to a jury trial at the resentencing hearing in general, or specifically on the question of whether the defendant poses an unreasonable risk of danger to public safety? In People v. Rivas Collin from 2015, the court held the defendant was not entitled to a jury trial because a defendant seeking resentencing has already been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt and the question presented at resentencing petition is not whether to increase the punishment for his offense, but whether the defendant is eligible for potential reduction of his sentence. More, resentencing, more recently, the appellate court in People v. Ortiz held a defendant is not entitled to a jury trial on the factual findings underlying eligibility for resentencing because the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to have essential facts found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt does not apply to limits on downward sentencing modifications. Ortiz has since been taken up for review by the California Supreme Court, but Rivas Collin remains on the books, and so does the line of cases following People v. Superior Court Colic from 2013, which held that a defendant was not entitled to a jury trial on questions of whether he posed an unreasonable risk of danger to the public in the context of a Prop 36 three strikes resentencing hearing, because among other things, dangerousness is not a factor which enhances the sentence imposed when a defendant is resentenced, but is a hurdle which must be crossed in order for a defendant to be resentenced at all. If a court denies a defendant's petition either initially or after a hearing, does the court have to state reasons for the denial on the record? It depends. In People v. Bush, a case we mentioned earlier, the trial court summarily denied a defendant's petition for resentencing on his prior convictions for elder theft in violation of Penal Code Section 368 and Section 496 without providing any reasons on the record for doing so. The defendant claimed the failure to state reasons was reversible error. As to the elder theft, the appellate court held that the trial court's statement that defendant was not eligible for resentencing was sufficient because the determination was not a factual one. It was strictly a legal conclusion. On the other hand, whether the amount of stolen property was under $950 was disputed and could not be determined from the record. As to those convictions, the appellate court held the trial court was required to specify the reasons for its determination. If a defendant is resentenced on one count that's been reduced to a misdemeanor, but he's currently serving a multi-count sentence, can the resentencing court restructure the entire sentence in light of the reduction? Yes, subject to the limitation that a greater sentence cannot be imposed. The appellate court in People v. Selner in 2015 stated the trial court not only is vested with jurisdiction to resentence defendant on the remaining counts, but is required to do so. More recently, the court in People v. Roos stated that the statutory scheme of Section 1170.18 envisions at least where multiple counts are at issue that resentencing will occur anew. 
with the court exercising its sentencing discretions and restructuring the entire sentencing package. The Roos Court went on to state, the purpose of Section 1170.18 is to take the defendant back to the time of the original sentence and re-sentence him with Prop 47 count, now a misdemeanor. Would the trial court be able to reimpose an enhancement that was stayed or stricken as part of the original sentence? Likely, yes. In the case of People v. Gardner, a case interpreting the resentencing provisions of Prop 36, the three strikes resentencing statute, the court held the resentencing court was allowed to reimpose a stricken one-year prior prison term sentence enhancements upon granting recall of the defendant's original sentence. In some cases, a defendant's conviction for an offense that has been made eligible for reduction to a misdemeanor under Prop 47 was the result of a plea bargain. A defendant may have been sentenced to a lot of custody time in exchange for a reduction of the charges or in exchange for the dismissal of charges that would not have been subject to resentencing under Prop 47. For example, a defendant charged with robbery and a drug offense may have pleaded guilty to the drug offense with the understanding the defendant would serve a substantial amount of time in prison. Reducing the drug offense conviction to a misdemeanor would significantly undermine the bargain for sentence. If the defendant successfully files a petition for reduction of his felony conviction to a misdemeanor, are the people entitled to withdraw from the plea agreement and reinstate the original charges? Well, Jeff, the answer to that question is currently up in the air as there is a split in the case law. In Harris versus Superior Court, the court held that reduction of a plea bargain felony charge to a misdemeanor under Prop 47 deprives the people of the benefit of the bargain of its plea agreement. Applying contract principles, which governs plea bargains, the Harris Court held the people are entitled to withdraw from the plea and reinstate its previously dismissed charges, thus returning the parties to the status quo ante. However, three other Court of Appeal decisions, People v. Gonzalez, People v. Brown, and People v. Perry disagreed with the holding in Harris, finding that unless the parties explicitly or implicitly agree otherwise, plea bargains are not impacted by later changes in the law. Plea bargains, like other contracts, are presumed to take into account that there might be a change in law and are not rendered void by those changes. Under the reasoning of these cases, the mere fact defendant agreed to serve a specified sentence in exchange for the dismissal of more serious charges is insufficient evidence that the defendant expressly or implicitly agreed her term of incarceration would be insulated from later legislative amendment. In any event, the Harris case has been taken up by the California Supreme Court and petitions for review are pending in Gonzalez, Brown, and Perry. Eunice, if prosecutors are worried about future changes in the law that might diminish the amount of time a defendant is going to be obtaining on a crime that the prosecutors negotiated uh, a plea to, should those prosecutors consider incorporating express terms into their plea bargains, limiting the ability of defendants to take advantage of future changes in the law? For example, there's a marijuana initiative that will likely be on the ballot in the fall, which will decriminalize many marijuana laws. Prosecutors should be wary when negotiating plea bargains where defendants are charged with multiple offenses 
one or more of which involve unlawful possession of marijuana, not to resolve the case for a plea to the marijuana offense. But if such a plea is negotiated, should prosecutors consider making part of the plea bargain an understanding that the sentence imposed cannot be impacted by future changes in the law? Perhaps. The Brown Court acknowledged that it is not impossible the parties to a particular plea bargain might affirmatively agree or implicitly understand the consequences of a plea will remain fixed despite amendments to the relevant law. In a, a subdivision D of section 1170.18, in pertinent part, says that a person who is resentenced pursuant to subdivision B shall be given credit for time served and shall be subject to parole for one year following completion of his or her sentence, unless the court decides uh, as part of its resentencing order uh, not to impose that condition. If a defendant is resentenced under section 1170.18 and is placed on this special one-year parole period, let's just call it Prop 47 parole, is the defendant entitled to any credit toward that time period or toward outstanding fines if, when the defendant is resentenced, he is left with additional custody credits. Generally, where the pre-sentence credits exceed the total state prison term, the excess credits, commonly known as SOSA credits, are deducted from the defendant's parole period. The issue of whether excess custody credits can be used to reduce or eliminate the one-year parole period required by Penal Code Section 1170.18 Subdivision D upon resentencing under Prop 47 is currently pending before the California Supreme Court. There are many cases that have addressed the issue, all of which have been taken up pending resolution in the lead case of People versus Morales. Morales held that the defendant was entitled to have any excess custody days arising from his resentencing credited against his one-year period of parole as well as against any fines, but other decisions came to a contrary conclusion, finding that Prop 47 parole is not the same as regular parole and is not subject to the same rules. Some of the cases even drew fine distinctions. Fine distinctions between what? No, they drew fine distinctions. Certain kinds of fines can be mitigated by excess credits and others cannot. Eunice, it seems like almost all the case law involving post-conviction reduction of offenses involves defendants currently serving a sentence who files a petition for, who file petitions for resentencing. Is there any case law on issues arising in applying subdivision F of section 1170.18? That's a section which allows persons who have completed their sentences to apply for a reduction. Well, you're right, Jeff. There's not a lot of case law, although a couple of cases have discussed the question of whether a defendant or the people are entitled to a hearing on his or her application. All right, so what do the cases say when it comes to not petitions for resentencing, but just these applications for reduction of a sentence after they've completed their sentence? Well, the statute itself states no hearing is required, and in People v. Diaz, the court appeared to read the statute to mean exactly that. However, in People v. Shabazz, the court indicated a hearing may be required. The Shabazz court stated, the filing of an application alerts the prosecution to the question of whether there are any disqualifying prior convictions. 
Thus, our analysis ensures that eligibility determination is made in a hearing where the prosecution is on notice of the existence of the disqualifying prior conviction issue. Okay, let's spend the, the last part of this presentation discussing some of the potential ramifications of a reduction of a felony conviction to a misdemeanor conviction. Now, subdivision K of section 1170.18 provides any felony conviction that is recalled and resentenced under subdivision B or designated as a misdemeanor under subdivision G shall be considered, here's the key language, shall be considered a misdemeanor for all purposes, except that it, such resentencing doesn't permit the person to own, possess, or have in their custody and control a firearm. So let's explore some of the case law discussing whether prior convictions resulting in state prison sentences that are reduced, that are later reduced to misdemeanors may still be used to enhance. So, if four years ago, a defendant was convicted of a felony, a violation of 11377, possession of methamphetamine, and served a completed term in state prison. But after Prop 47 passed, obtained a reduction of that crime to a misdemeanor. Can that state prison conviction ever be used again under section 667.5 to enhance the sentence for a crime committed after that reduction occurred? Well, there is an argument alluded to in several opinions, though not expressly adopted, that can be made that a prior conviction that qualifies under Penal Code Section 667.5 remains usable for enhancement purposes under all circumstances, regardless of when the felony conviction was reduced to a misdemeanor pursuant to Proposition 47. The rationale behind this argument is that it is not the prior conviction itself that enhances the sentence, but the fact that the defendant has served a prior separate prison term or county jail term. And that latter fact is not altered by the reduction of a felony conviction to a misdemeanor by Prop 47. In other words, the enhancement is based on the defendant's recidivist status, not the underlying criminal conduct. The counter argument is that a prior felony conviction is required to enhance a sentence under section 667.5. In the brand new case, People versus Abdallah, the court essentially adopted this counter argument in rejecting the defendant's claim that a one year prison prior term sentence enhancement applied even though felony convictions underlying the prior conviction had been reduced to a misdemeanor before the defendant was sentenced on the enhancement. The court reasoned that one of the chief reasons for reducing a wobbler to a misdemeanor is that under such circumstances, the offense is not considered to be serious enough to entitle the court to resort to it as a prior conviction of a felony for the purpose of increasing the penalty for a subsequent crime. Most cases dealing with the section 667.5 issue have found that if the defendant only obtains a reduction of the felony underlying felony conviction that provides the basis for section 667.5 one year enhancement after the defendant has been convicted and sentenced on the crime that was enhanced, the defendant is out of luck. These courts reason that to change the sentence to eliminate the section 667.5 enhancement after it has already been imposed 
would constitute a retroactive application of Prop 47. These courts have concluded the reduction of the offense only applies prospectively, that is from the date of redesignation forward, but not retroactively, and that is as if the offense had been committed as a misdemeanor to the date it was committed. I know the IPG memo accompanying this okay, broad- that I went because that, that last part. What's, uh, you, you added a few more extra words in there. Mm -hmm. So let's pick it up, if we can, from the, uh, most courts, most cases dealing with the section 667.5 issue. Okay, from, from the top of 56. Yeah. Most cases dealing with the section 667.5 issue have found that if the defendant only obtains a reduction of the underlying felony conviction that provides the basis for a section 667.5 one-year enhancement after the defendant has been convicted and sentenced on the crime that was enhanced, the defendant is out of luck. These courts reason that to change the sentence to eliminate the section 667.5 enhancement after it has already been imposed would constitute a retroactive application of Prop 47. These courts have concluded the reduction of the offense only applies prospectively, that is, from the date of redesignation forward, but not retroactively, that is, as if the offense had been a misdemeanor from the date it was committed. I know the IPG memo accompanying this broadcast cover these cases pretty extensively and discusses the various sub-arguments that have been made and rejected, including the argument that equal protection is somehow violated because defendants who are sentenced after Prop 47 passed are able to avoid enhancements based on prior felony or wobbler convictions because the redesignations they obtain on those prior convictions apply prospectively. While those sentenced in the past are unable to avoid enhancements based on prior felony or wobbler convictions because the redesignations they obtain in, on those prior convictions do not apply retroactively. Yeah, we do get into those issues pretty extensively in the IPG memo. We're not gonna go uh, further into it on this presentation. All right, so when a conviction being used for enhancement is, is actually reduced, obviously is important. So clearly, if a felony conviction is reduced before the commission of a new offense, an enhancement based on that conviction being a felony will not be applicable. But what if the conviction is reduced sometime after the commission of the new offense? Do we have any cases discussing whether a reduction for example, of a felony conviction being used for enhancement of a new offense is reduced after conviction of the new offense, but before the defendant is actually sentenced on the new offense. Yes. In fact, just yesterday, a case issued addressing that question came out, the case of People versus Abdallah. In Abdallah, the defendant was convicted and served a state prison sentence for a felony in 2002. Less than five years after defendant was released from prison, the defendant was convicted of possessing drugs in violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11377. In 2014, the defendant was charged and convicted of several new felony offenses, a Section 667.5 allegation based on the 2002 conviction was also found to be true by the jury. 
In between the time the defendant was found guilty and he was sentenced, defendant successfully petitioned to have his section 11377 conviction from 2009 reduced. On appeal of the 2014 convictions, the defendant argued that the section 667.5 enhancement based on the prior conviction had to be stricken because section 667.5 only applies when the defendant did not remain free for five years of both prison custody and the commission of a new offense resulting in a felony conviction. And by obtaining a reduction of section 11377 conviction to a misdemeanor, he no longer could be considered as having committed a new offense resulting in a felony conviction. The people argued that since the defendant reoffended within five years of his release on parole on the 2002 conviction, the fact that the subsequent offense is no longer a felony was inconsequential. The people contended Prop 47 should not go back in time and apply retroactively to every affected offense in every context. However, the appellate court rejected this argument, finding that at the time of sentencing in this case, the defendant was not a person who had committed an offense which resulted in a felony conviction within five years after his release on parole for his prior conviction. The appellate court stated that the trial court did not reach back in time to resentence the defendant in the current case based on the redesignation of a predicate offense under section 1170.18 subdivision F for the prior prison term enhancement because the trial court did not use Mr. Abdallah's 2011 conviction as if it were a felony conviction for purposes of imposing the prior prison term enhancement until after the court had recalled Mr. Abdallah's 2011 sentence and resentenced him under Prop 47. On this basis, the Abdallah court distinguished all the cases holding that Prop 47 does not apply retroactively to redesignate predicate offenses as misdemeanors for purposes of imposing sentencing enhancements where the original sentence was imposed before the enactment of Prop 47. Okay, let's say a defendant obtains a reduction of a felony conviction to a misdemeanor under Prop 47, and the defendant has suffered an additional felony conviction for failing to appear on the felony that had been reduced. Must the felony conviction for failing to appear also be reduced to a misdemeanor conviction? So that was a question posed in People v. Perez from 2015. In Perez, the defendant was convicted of a felony drug charge, Health and Safety Code 11377, and was also convicted of a felony charge of failing to appear after being released on OR on the felony drug charge. His conviction became final in early 2014 before the passage of Prop 47. Defendant then successfully petitioned for a recall of his sentence and reduction of his felony conviction. The defendant also requested that his conviction for violating section 1320B be reduced to a misdemeanor violation of section 1320A, which makes it a misdemeanor to fail to appear after an OR on a misdemeanor offense. The defendant's theory was that since his felony conviction for violating section 11377 was reduced to a misdemeanor for all purposes as provided, 
for in section 1170.18K, this meant his extant felony FTA sentence was an unauthorized sentence and had to be reduced to a misdemeanor conviction. The trial court denied this request and that denial was upheld by the appellate court. The appellate court gave several reasons in supporting of its holding. First, the court believed that allowing the subsequent reduction of the felony drug offense to subvert the conviction for failing to appear would constitute an improper retroactive application of Prop 47. Second, the court believed that Prop 47 did not speak to pendant or ancillary offenses, but only to the offense listed therein. Third, a felony conviction for failing to appear is unrelated to whether the underlying felony resulted in a conviction. It can be violated if the defendant fails to appear on a charged felony. Thus, the fact that the underlying felony conviction was reduced to a misdemeanor should have no bearing on the felony conviction for violation of Penal Code Section 1320B. However, the Perez case was taken up for review by the California Supreme Court. Another case, People v. ND also came to the same conclusion as Perez on the same issue, but it was also taken up for review. So we have to wait to hear on this one. Has any case dealt with how a reduction of a felony offense to a misdemeanor will impact the bail enhancement statute? That's Penal Code Section 12022.1 Subdivision B. And that section says that any person arrested for a secondary offense that was alleged to have been committed while that person was released from custody on a primary offense shall be subject to a penalty enhancement of two years. And it has to be served consecutively as well. Now both the primary offense, which is the offense for which the person has been released from custody on bail or on their own recognizance before the judgment becoming final, and the secondary offense, which is the offense that's alleged to have been committed while the person was released from custody on the primary offense, both of them have to be felonies. If a defendant obtains a reduction of a felony conviction to a misdemeanor under Prop 47 in a multi-count case where the defendant is charged with an on-bail enhancement pursuant to Penal Code Section 1222.1b, must the on-bail enhancement be dismissed? So that was addressed in a case called People v. Bucks from 2015. In Bucks, a defendant had been convicted of a felony narcotics offense under Health and Safety Code Section 11350. And while out on bail on that first offense, committed two additional felony offenses, petty theft with a prior and evading a police officer. In sentencing, defendant in that second case, the court imposed a two-year section 12022.1 subdivision B bail enhancement. After Prop 47 passed, the trial court in the first case granted defendant's petition to reduce his narcotics offense to a misdemeanor. Then the court in the second case reduced his petty theft with a prior count to a misdemeanor. However, because the second evading police felony count remained and because the defendant's original sentence has utilized the petty theft with the prior as the principal term, the trial court conducted a full resentencing. It elevated the felony evading count to the full base term and reimposed the section 12022.1 enhancement. The appellate court in Bucks had no problem with the trial court making the felony evading count the base term on resentencing. 
but held the trial court erred in reimposing the section 12022.1 bail enhancement. The Bucks courts reasoned as follows. Section 1170.18 subdivision K generally requires that an offense that has been reduced to a misdemeanor after a section 1170.18 resentencing be considered a misdemeanor for all purposes. When the trial court in the second case conducted its resentencing, it was required to evaluate the circumstances as they existed then. At that time, the primary offense was no longer a felony. It was a misdemeanor. Thus, the section 12022.1 enhancement, which depends on both the primary and secondary offense being felonies, could not be reimposed. Although they also noted that the case before it did not involve a collateral challenge to an on-bail enhancement, not otherwise part of a resentencing in a second case, and suggested they would reach a different conclusion in that circumstance, we don't have a definitive answer, though, because the California Supreme Court has taken bucks up for review. If a defendant obtains a reduction of a felony drug offense to a misdemeanor drug offense, is the defendant still required to register as a drug offender? Well, in People v. Pinon from 2015, the appellate court agreed with both parties that once a conviction for violating Health and Safety Code Section 11377 was reduced to a misdemeanor, it was no longer necessary for the defendant to register as a sex offender. This seems right, but Pinon was yet another case taken up for review by the California Supreme Court. Eunice, is a defendant whose felony conviction is reduced to a misdemeanor under Section 1170.18 entitled to have their DNA sample expunged from the DNA database. So there was a decision in Ray Alejandro N. that held that a defendant was entitled to have his DNA sample expunged from the DNA database if his felony conviction was reduced to a misdemeanor. However, as of January 1, 2016, the legislator amended Section 1170.18. The legislator passed a bill which changed subdivision F of Penal Code Section 299 in a way that would override the ruling in Alejandro N. The new version now states, notwithstanding any other law, including Section 17, 1170.18, 1203.4, and 1203.4a, a judge is not authorized to relieve a person of the separate administrative duty to provide specimens samples or print impressions required by this chapter if a person has been found guilty of an offense required that required the provisions of dna samples expect a challenge by the defense to this new law on the grounds that this amendment is inconsistent with and does not further the intent of prop 47 a requirement in order for a change to be made to prop 47. however so far, no challenge to the new law has yet come about. Eunice, may a defendant whose petition or application for resentencing or redesignation been denied, can that person refile the petition? At least one court of appeal, People v. Perkins, has indicated defendants may refile petitions for resentencing after upholding the denial of a petition by the trial court at least where the failure of the defendant to meet the eligibility requirements could be attributed to unresolved or ambiguous language in Prop 47. All right. Well, Eunice, 
I don't know about you, but at this point, my brain cannot absorb any more information <laughs> about Prop 47. So I'm going to stop asking questions. And if there remain any questions out there that are not addressed or have not been addressed in these, in these past two podcasts, hopefully they will be answered in the accompanying handout. So thanks again for joining me on the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.